Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs. We get together every other week with some of the smartest women in our industry and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy here with my colleague, Heather Bell. Hey, Heather. Hiya. And today we are taking on the passive versus active debate. Joining us for this fun conversation is ASO, Global Head of Product Management at S&P Dow Jones Indices. Welcome, A. Hi, Cynthia and Heather. How are you guys? Good. Great. So many of us in this business, A, have come to affectionately know you as the Spiva Diva. So before we perpetuate this nickname, I wanted to ask you, is that a flattering thing to you? Do you like it or do you want to take a moment here to kill it? Oh, thanks. You know, it's 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 kind of funny how I um, came to have that name. Um, and I don't know if the audience want to hear it, but maybe now that I have the platform, maybe I'll take two seconds <laughs> and explain how it came about. It was it really started about a couple of years ago. I was on a on a podcast with uh, Phil Back and Eric Bautuners, and they know that I've done a long I've done I've had a long history of doing research on active versus passive, the Spiva scorecard. They ask me if I get um, hate mail from active managers or they call me any and fluttering names. And I said, no, not really. Uh, but internally, uh, you know, uh, my colleagues at SMP lovingly called me uh, Spiva Diva. So I shared that little tidbit with them and um, they really liked it. And it came to uh, when I was doing interviews with Bloomberg a few times, uh, they, they refer me by that and it kind of gets stuck. And, you know, at this point, um, I figure I might as well have fun with it, you know, and um, and if the audience has an opinion whether I should kill it or not, please let me know. But I, I figure I'll just go along with it. No, you wear it well, so I really hope you keep it. It's a good one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk SPIVA. Um, SPIVA is an acronym that stands for S&P Indices versus Active. So, you know, give us a, let's set the stage here for anyone out there who hasn't heard of SPIVA. Uh, what is this report? What is this data? And what does it tell us generally? Absolutely. So SPIVA is this research scorecard that we've been publishing for 20 years now. So SPIVA is a full-blown, uh, more than a teenager, almost an adult now, you know, uh, so for two decades since 2001, uh, we started publishing. And one of the reasons was we saw that um, indexing was taking hold and investors were starting to use uh, index linked investment products um, or in particular ETFs as a way to uh, gain um, exposure or in the in the uh, in the investment process. And we wanted to really understand how indices measure up to um to, 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 to active products. So we started publishing since 2001. And so as the name suggests, it's really uh, the measuring the performance of active funds, active mutual funds across equity and fixed income categories against their passive counterparts, so namely indices. Um, and we build up the track record uh, since 2001, started out in the U.S., and there was a lot of overwhelming um, demand and need in the marketplace to understand how actively managed strategies are faring. And uh, it became even more popular after 2008, as you can imagine. Uh, we extended it to other countries, 
uh, to Canada, and then to India, to Japan, to Australia, and Europe, and and we now publish in South Africa. We're about to introduce uh, in the Middle East. So you know, and and in Latin America too, in countries like Brazil uh, and in Mexico. So it has really gone global. I, I believe you know the last time I looked at it. It's across, you know, nine different regions or uh, regional blocks and, and, and numerous countries. So it's a very, very good uh, go-to source for global investors uh, to have a point of view on how in a particular country the active strategies are faring against uh, local uh, passive benchmarks. And it's all available on our website. Well, what I, what I think is so, I mean, there's so many things we can take uh, out of uh, SPIVA. I think the the main takeaway, which seems to be the same takeaway year after year, is that um, overall, it, SPIVA paints a pretty unflattering picture for active management. Success is not only fleeting, is hard to predict, is very hard to repeat. So it makes a tough case to support active management. But the, the flip side of that is, you know, a lot of people say this whole passive versus active is is a debate that's kind of incomplete. It doesn't really apply. It doesn't tell the full story. So I'm just curious from all the data from your experience, you know, as we live through what we saw this, this month, the game stops out there and the AMCs and this, you know, stock picking phenomenon that's gathering so much steam. Uh, what are your thoughts on this whole passive versus active debate and from the perspective of what the SPIVA data tells you year over year? Absolutely. There is so much to unpack, Cynthia. So I'm going to uh, start with, you know, the, the high level findings. And the high level findings is that it's very difficult to outperform a benchmark um, over time. And when I say over time, over five, 10 or 20 year long-term investment horizon, obviously, you know, year to year, you could have fluctuation in market conditions and, and you could have uh, uh, the majority of active managers beating the benchmark in a particular category. But when you look at it over time, uh, again, long-term investment horizon that matches with our, you know, investment horizon, you, you see like the majority, by and large, it's, it's very difficult to, to beat a benchmark. Obviously, there are pockets and there are exceptions area, and I'll come back to that shortly. But in, in domestic equity, U.S. equity, for example, it's, it's just very difficult to beat the benchmark um, over medium to long-term horizon. Um, that said, I always, you know, get this comment that you know, um, the active versus passive debate is, is over or is incomplete or it's no longer about active versus passive, it's about uh, the tools that you have in your toolkit. And, you know, so for me, coming from um, the, 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 the research side and publishing it, it was never about uh, use active or use passive. We really wanted to, first and foremost, educate um, the end investor, an average investor, about you know um, what they are really getting on average from an active strategy uh, versus a, a passive benchmark. So it's really coming from the educational angle. And even when there are years, it doesn't it doesn't look favorably to to passive. We publish and we we let the data speak for itself. But going back to is the debate complete or incomplete? Um, I, I come from the point of view that, you know, increasingly 
um, more and more investors are extremely outcome oriented, goal oriented, right? They have a specific mm-hmm. outcome that they want to achieve, whether it's, you know, saving for their retirement or, or, or saving for their kids' college education or, you know, to buy an Aston Martin, I don't know, right? <laughs> but, but all that is you, that's your outcome that you want to achieve. And you have a whole range of tools available at your disposal. And it could be active, it could be passive. It's it's making that informed decision, using that toolkit appropriately um, to gain the exposure that you need so that you can achieve the outcome that you want to achieve. So so I come from that angle and 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 that's always you know, how I communicate whenever I'm talking about Spiva and I'm liaising with whether asset owners or consultants or uh, advisors, what have you, my my advice to them is always, you have so much education at your disposal. Um, you know, S&P, we've published for the last two decades, but I know Vanguard is doing that, Morningstar is doing that. There's so much education out there for you. Use that, look at the asset classes, First of all, determine your outcome and then look at what the exposure you need and then look in each asset classes, what works and what doesn't work, because the education is there. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, I was wondering, um, we know that active usually underperforms passive, but there are some examples of like outstanding active performance. Um, do you, f- I don't know if you keep track of um, this kind of data, but when active actually works, is it usually because someone's making high conviction bets or is it um, usually when someone's using a quantitative methodology to um, kind of tweak a broad exposure? Um, like what have you seen what the outcomes are? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's so interesting, right? Because uh, what, so what I have seen now, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is as indexing becomes more and more innovative, right? You could get a lot of uh, what used to be actively uh, managed strategies in a passive wrapper. And because of that, um, a lot of the active managers are now taking on more and more um, high conviction, um, concentrated uh, portfolios. And, and in some ways it makes sense because you want to get paid or, or managers want to get paid for the degree of the conviction on the skill of the security selection on how they are forming their um, portfolios so portfolio construction and how they're managing how they're rebalancing so 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 to me that makes sense in a way that they're moving towards more concentrated high conviction um, and, and strategies and there's a huge level of active share between the index and the portfolio we also see quantitative strategies they tend to be a bit more broadly diversified right and and they tend to be enhanced indexing which means they have a t- tight tracking error to the benchmark and so how these two type of active strategies will perform versus the benchmark is going to be very um, dependent on the market conditions. And and, and so in, in, a, in a market like, for example, we had last year, there's a, you know, there's a degree of dispersion of returns between sectors, between the winners and the laggers. Um, and, and we saw that last year, everything tech growth, mega cap, outperform everything else 
did not do well, right? So in a highly, um, in a high, in a, in a market environment uh, characterized by that kind of high dispersion um, characteristics, what we might see is that a concentrated high conviction uh, portfolio, an active portfolio, could theoretically do really well, assuming they have the calls right, they take the right bets, they pick the right stocks, you know, and and and. and and then you can have these quant, quant strategies that tend to be enhanced indexing or what have you. They, they don't do as well. And that was also what we saw because last year, every single factor broke down um, with the exception of growth and momentum and maybe high beta. So, you know, 2020 was such a, a, an interesting year because you had this deep, deep drawdown uh, in March and we expected low volatility and minimum volatility type of uh, strategies to do well. Those quant strategies broke down. But if you have a high conviction or you have a theme of transformational technology, and that's the theme and you're uh, you know, picking securities based on that, we see those type of strategies uh, really being rewarded. Um, you know, to the north of like 100 something percent returns. And I think that's what you're seeing with, uh, you mentioned earlier, um, Cynthia and Heather about ARC and, you know, high conviction uh, portfolios. And and I think that's what we saw happen uh, last year. But so does that mean that in your experience, um, it is actually possible to consistently, maybe that's not the right word here, generate alpha? Uh, you know, in the case of ARC, for example, it was like the perfect confluence of factors, right? From from themes to trends to the acceleration of all of them at the same time to clear winners and losers to being in the right spot when it all hit. So is that like just, you know, in a way luck or is that really speaks to there is a possibility out there of picking the right manager that can deliver that consistent outperformance? That's a great, great, you know, um, question. And I'm going to speak uh, uh, on, a, on a general basis uh, based on the research that we've done and, and, the, and the data that we publish. And then I'll come back to, to, to ARC type of strategies. What we have found, and we, we published this report called Fleeting Alpha, which goes hand in hand with SPIVA, because SPIVA only looks at the managers that out. Uh, the funds that outperform over one, three, five, or 10 year horizon. What it doesn't look at is, let's say, for example, in a particular year, a manager that outperforms a benchmark, what is the likelihood of that manager going next year and the year after to outperform the benchmark? So it measures the consistency of alpha, if you will. And, and so when we look at it, like in, on, on, on average, when we look at all these funds or the strategies that outperform S&P 500 or the broad market um, in a given year, and then we track them the following year, what we find is it declines dramatically, you know, and then you get to the third year and it declines even more. So there's a dramatic decay from year one to year two for that manager to, to, to uh, consistently beat the benchmark. So what I always say is, you know, I'm not saying that, again, you know, based on the data, there aren't, there are, I'm not saying there are no managers that cannot beat the benchmark. There are certainly every year, right? 40% mm -hmm. will go on to beat. But the very likelihood of that manager being able to repeat that next year 
and then the year after that declines and 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 there are some that are left right a few are left at the end of three years it's not like there's none but there are a few that are left but it's so small it's such a small that part of the universe a sample of the universe and then i always say this what are the pro- what is the probability that when you're starting on day zero the likelihood of you being able to properly identify the manager is is very also very low so so there are a lot of things working against an average investor to be able to identify that manager in advance starting on day one and then the likelihood of manager going to outperform year after year consistently that's also very low but there are some and there are a handful that are left at the end of the measurement period it's just that it's just a small percentage absolutely and i think if you you know um i i give tremendous kudos to Kathy Wood and and the arc and the funds and the performance is is amazing and we saw that last year and i think the key is going to be whether you know it consistently delivers alpha um on a year after year basis yeah it's fascinating that we have there's so much data to to really highlight the pitfalls or the challenges with active management and yet the appetite for stock picking for you know all in on the winner is so big. It's just a fascinating phenomenon. But before our, our call, you know, Heather was pointing out um, that active management seems to work better in certain asset classes. What were the ones you pointed out, Heather? It, um, it was like in the last SPIVA report, I believe it was real estate, small cap growth, and then investment grade intermediate bonds. And I've been following the Spiva report, I think since the first one came out, which is totally in a way horrifying to me um, <laughs> because that's 20 years. Um, but um, I, I think those asset classes have been kind of the ones where active managers have been the most likely to outperform uh, for quite a bit of the history of the Spiva report. And I was just wondering why those categories or are there any thoughts on that? Yes, um, so we, we, we saw a few trends. Uh, first of all, small cap space. We find that, um, you know, sometimes by and large, though, over long run, 20 years, it's, it's also very difficult to outperform the S&P small cap 600. And it's more difficult to outperform S&P small cap 600 than Russell 2000 uh, because S&P small cap has outperformed Russell um, over the last 20 years also. So there's that return hurdle. But we find that every now and then, um, active managers um, uh, have done well against um, against the, the, the small cap uh, benchmark also. And, you know, I, I don't like to speculate what um, kind of bets they may be holding without really looking at the, 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 the holdings and, you know, the type of securities they have. But I do think last year, you know, um, anything growth and everything growth did really well, you know, especially in small cap space, right? Last year in the small caps, what were the big drivers? It was you know, the healthcare companies, you know, the, this, these biotech companies, anything that because of the the, the, uh, the virus and the environment that we're in, 
they, they, they rallied like there was no tomorrow. So if you were an active managers and you um, were loading up or you have heavy concentration in those types of securities, you're going to do better and you're going to do even maybe better than the benchmark. So to me, it kind of makes sense that there were pockets. Um, the other area that I used to see uh, active managers doing well, but then the alpha has sort of been arbitraged in the last few years is international small cap um, and not, not emerging markets, which is surprising, right? But in international small cap. And I always wonder about that. Why is that? And, you know, I, I have some, you know, um, ideas why that may be. And part of that was, I uh, was, we were able to confirm how we couldn't. And one of that is that, you know, if you look at a lot of the broad, um, commonly used, uh, you know, benchmarks in that, let's say MSCI, they, they tend to skip the small cap, right? It doesn't cover the small cap securities. So it tends to be a little bit of an overlooked asset class or a segment. And there were a lot of um, uh, return opportunities for active managers uh, to pick that from. That said, we are seeing that over time, um, that advantage has been sort of declining and now is, it's uh, at par with the benchmark. I'm going to go back to fixed income a little bit because I think Heather brought up the intermediate uh, bond. Um, fixed income is interesting because there's another research report that we put out uh, is for the institutional space where we add back the fees. You know, uh, we yeah, and because we wanted to understand the impact of fees on performance, and we found that when it comes to fixed income, when you add back the fees actually a lot of the managers in certain categories end up outperforming and so the, then the, the 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 question becomes in fixed income does do these alpha opportunities get eaten up by the fees you know uh, because the returns are t so tightly clustered so i you know i i mean to 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 sum it up and the other category might be real estate i do think real estate is interesting um because it's also one um you know there there are a lot of reads and there are you know uh and and we are seeing it could be that the sample set is smaller or what have you, real estate funds in, in recent years have been doing well against the benchmark and the persistence has been higher than the other categories. So it's an interesting area. And the question is going to be, how do these real estate funds do? How do they do in, in 2020 when they were all beaten up really badly? And how do they fare against you know the benchmark? So when the SPIVA year in 2020 scorecard comes out, it's going to be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Hey, I wanted to, to go just quickly circle back to something you said, just, you know, for example, the opportunity in small caps was really because it was an overlooked segment. And once people caught on to that, it quickly, that opportunity for alpha got arbitraged away. If we think of ETFs as a democratizing vehicle, and we think of um, as increasing access to markets, uh, is it getting harder then to actually find alpha because more and more people are coming to market and and playing the game, if you will? Uh, is it, or is does that really doesn't change just the difficulty of actually generating alpha over time? I think that um, ETFs for sure definitely democratize the access. 
and you know and and there's the lower cost and the transparency and and all that benefits that go with it but first and foremost we have to recognize etfs really offer a, a way for an investor to gain access to any you know hard to get market segment uh you know hard to access market segment or risk exposure and that in turn um, level the playing field. If you look in, in in smart beta, especially one of the attributes, right? Like why uh, was that the, these type of quant strategies were sitting very much well within the active uh, world and only available to institutional or high no, ultra high net worth investors. But now anybody you know can can go and get exposure to low volatility or quality. Um, uh, factor and 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 can put it together in a way that fits their purpose. So so in that sense, by the emergence of ETFs, really level level the playing field and probably makes it harder for active managers to 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 claim alpha because you can get the same sort of returns or if not better, um, you know through passive index products at at probably a lower cost. So in that sense, it it brings up like you know the hurdle becomes so much higher. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. In the data, has you know over twenty years, have you seen a decline in the number of active managers that actually outperform? I mean, is is that a recognizable trend? Yeah, I think what we're noticing is you know it's also go hand in hand with like what's going on in the asset management world, right? You're seeing this consolidation taking place. Um, you're seeing you know one buying the other. So in the last, uh, and what that leads to is either liquidation or merge or, you know, managers like just exiting the, you know, uh, leaving the business. So the trends that's taking place in the um, asset management industry is sort of playing out in the number um, of funds. Um, Heather, if that's what you were uh, getting at, we see that, 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 that um, hauling out of the belly of the asset management industry, the firms can also lead to lower number of um, uh, funds available because of liquidation or merging or exiting the business altogether. Hey, I thought we could finish up um, because we're getting here to our time uh, with the, you know, share with us your experience, uh, you know, all the research, all the work you've done on this data is there anything, any part of this data that still surprises you every year or conversely, any part of your job in the, you know, with S&P and the indices and the ETF business that uh, you still find, you know, renewing and exciting year after year? I, I think this, we, we are working in a tremendous is great industry, great ecosystem, you know, and I, and I'm part of the index world. And I'll tell you, like, there's never the same day, right? Like one day I could be talking to a client because of Tesla edition, right? Mm-hmm. Or last week it was about GameStop and, you know, um, uh, the volatility that the up and down volatility of the security and how that's impacting our indices. So it's never the same, um, Never the never the same, you know, monotony. Uh, and I also think, you know, the the Spiva research, the active versus passive research we're doing, for me personally, is so rewarding because I do think that um, passive investing has a lot of benefits. 
Um, and it, it's 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 for there's a great cause. And somebody will say, of course, you're going to say that you uh, you are you are an index provider. But you know, truly, I believe that the data speaks for itself. You know, over the long term, um, it's very difficult to beat a market benchmark, uh, and you know, and and a lot of the funds end up end up performing. And so we really have to think about the choices that we make, and even the benchmark selection that matters. So you know, within the same market segment, am I picking the wrong benchmark because that means you're also leaving money on the table? So there's so much to learn, there's so much to understand, and there's so much to do. And you know, sometimes I feel like just when I think you cannot slice and dice the market any further and, and create indices, there's new innovative way that comes up with. And I'm like completely in awe and I'm like, okay, this is why I like what I do, you know? Mm-hmm. No, that's uh, it's great. Um, I guess it's um, choose wisely and education never ends. So that's what we take from there. Hey, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experience in this business and your expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Thank you. For more episodes, please check out ETF.com. For more information on women in ETFs, please check out womeninetfs.com. On behalf of Heather and myself and the ETF.com team, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.